From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, is in the house. If you've got a question for Colin, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email, openline at EWTN.com, or you can text your question to Colin. Text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response, text your first name and your question message, and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Mr. Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So, if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, this is the maiden voyage of Open Line with our brand spanking new 4K HD cameras here in the studio. And, you know, we have a, a sort of a... Sort of a. I didn't put my makeup on. Jack. We have sort That's of a, yeah. We have sort of a protocol in place where we we have have sort of casual Fridays around here where yeah. people will dress a little more casually. And I wasn't thinking about the new 4K HD cameras when I put my Maze University of Michigan pullover on today. So we're going to put the cameras through their paces and see if they oh, can handle gosh. what kind can... of a color range that they can handle at this point. Yeah, so That'll be quite a challenge. Will be a Not challenge. to mention the fact that uh, I started dressing nicely for you because your wife is always so well-dressed on her show. But obviously that respect is not reciprocated on this show. Uh, no, it's not. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> I'm the executive vice president in charge of your humility, Colin. So you're doing a good job. <laughs> I, I'm presuming, <laughs> of course. <laughs> very good. You're so trying you, it. At yeah. Least. If you'd like to, if you'd like to talk to Colin, the number is eight three three two eight eight E W T N. That's eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Wide open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls uh, here on this uh, final advent between a uh, final final. Friday before the fourth Sunday of Advent. And we have a unique, so we get a full Advent this year as the calendar has worked its way out and Christmas falling on a Saturday. You know, there are some years when the fourth week of Advent is a hiccup. Right, yeah, it's very perfunctory because this is the third or fourth Sunday. Third Sunday is right before that. But we're more or less getting the the full full Megillah this time. Yeah, very good. Christmas Eve on Friday, have the Donovan family made all of their Christmas preparations? Uh, we will be doing that, but first, uh, <laughs> my daughter is singing in our children's choir, so we will be doing the chapel. Uh, oh, the well, there you go. Christmas Eve mass here. At that will be lovely, and she's also the the lovely and talented Siobhan uh, Donovan is also uh, uh, performing in the uh, local company's 
performance of the Nutcracker here in the Birmingham area. And uh, she they, is. They yes. bring now. They bring a. She's clearly part of a troupe from which they draw young talent on an annual basis. Yeah, it is. They have the Alabama Ballet, which is uh, one of uh, a few local uh, companies which have ballet as part of their things that they teach. Uh, there's another one in Anniston. And we did. She did some shows in Anniston w- together with the children of that. And of course, there's the adult company that is also doing the the major, the adult parts. Uh, but the children is what's called a community cast, and they're usually drawn from the from the schools. You know, you've got introductory roles like the little mice, and then you've got the, you know, the the other roles. Um, my daughter's worked her way up to saber now, uh, <laughs> so she's hoping to get something a little bit more advanced in the coming years. But uh, we'll see how the. But it, it's a it's a great opportunity, and they perform. Uh, the uh, New York Ballet's sanctioned Balanchine version of the Nutcracker, and their uh, supervisory authority is the Royal Ballet uh, in England. Uh, so someone comes over from there and and checks the children out each year and sort of grades them on things. So All it's right. Very good. quite a pathway. So the encore of EWTN's Open Line Friday is at 10 p.m. Eastern, so that's 9 o'clock here in the Central Time Zone tonight. So let her stay up past her bedtime so she can hear <laughs> all the praises that her father heaped upon her today during Open Line Friday. Um, again, if you'd like to be on the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Joe, in the great state of Ohio, uh, is watching us on uh, YouTube or Facebook Live. Well, he may have called, actually, because it's coming from Matt, our screener, and he says that his pastor is planning on avoiding pronouns by saying such things as God's self. Can he do that? Uh, where he is substituting for the wording of the liturgical books, that is a liturgical abuse, and he may not do it. Uh, obviously, you know, if he's uh, uh, talking to somebody conversationally, uh, I would say he would be wrong to do it because it makes no sense. Um, it, these are not language, this is not language that the church has ever used. So it's really, you know, you know, not to eclipse his freedom, but I think it sets a bad example for the flock to do that. Uh, the church has the pronouns which... Uh, reflects the revealed data which the church says comes from God, and it uses, on the basis of that data, it has a theology of the Godhead. So God's self I've never heard of. That's a new one. (laughs) Uh, We speak of the Godhead, meaning the divine nature, the three divine persons in their totality. Um, God's self, I've never heard of that because there's three persons, and if you're thinking of self as an individuated person, uh, that doesn't really apply to the Trinity. Uh, so that's a, linguistically and theologically a poor choice of words uh, anyway. Uh, but in the liturgy, it's absolutely forbidden, uh, and it's a, a grave abuse. And it teaches a wrong message about the nature of God to avoid uh, the revealed pronouns where God reveals himself, using masculine pronouns not because he's male or female, but because he's saying something distinctive about the nature of God with respect to his creation. Men create outside of themselves. Masculinity is therefore something of an analogic substitute for that reality, whereas femininity is a substitute, you might say, for creation as a whole, receiving uh, the divine gift. And so 
when we part when we depart from revelation we also depart from theology we depart from common sense even in order to satisfy constituencies in the uh, in the society so it's really uh, it's it's wrong in the liturgy uh, it makes no sense otherwise uh, to do it Basil in Los Osos, California, wants to know, how did the Church decide to make December 25th the day we celebrate the birth of Christ? I think it sort of backed into it. Uh, There have been some arguments made that that's the actual uh, birthday of the Lord. But in any case, it is the liturgical day of celebration. Uh, In the same way, we don't celebrate Easter or Good Friday on the actual days, which we can make guesses about but don't really know what they are. But we do it within a liturgical ethos and calendar, which shows us the entirety of of Christ's life from his birth to his death, resurrection, and ascension and the beginning of the church uh, for that purpose of uh, of teaching, of pedagogy, and for worship. Uh, So December 25th, whether it is or is not in relationship to the actual uh, birthday of Christ, is irrelevant from that point of view. Uh, The arguments of it from a natural point of view as a natural sign are actually quite good uh, because what is this? We're in the depths of winter, and in the depths of winter comes the light, and light brings brings, uh, with it spring and the new springtime for mankind. So from a sort of power of, of usage, a power of practice or sacramental, and therefore liturgical point of view, it's actually quite symbolic uh, to out of the dark depths of the winter, um, shortly after the winter solstice, uh, to celebrate the birth of the light, the divine light into the world. Uh, so those are the reasons, uh, not to set down a historical marker that we believe, you know, Christ was born on December 25th, although some have argued it, and uh, they can make their arguments, and we're entitled to say, yeah, that makes sense, or no, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily true. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. If you call right now, you'll get right into the queue. Three open phone lines for you. As soon as those fill up, then you'll be on hold for a brief period of time. 833-288-EWTN. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. If you want to keep up with everything that's going on at EWTN, we've got a vehicle for you. It's Wings, our EWTN weekly e-newsletter. You can find out about EWTN radio and television shows, items from religious catalog, and a whole lot more. Sign up for Wings at EWTN.com and look for the subscribe button. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833 
888-288-3986. First up today is Michael in Tulsa, Oklahoma, listening on St. Michael's Radio. Michael, happy Advent. Welcome to the program. Thank you. My question it deals with indulgences. If the Eucharist is the source and summit of our life, is that an indulgence? Also, if you're praying the office of readings and you do it for over a half hour, would that be equivalent to the Scripture for 30 minutes of Scripture? Would that be a, a plenary indulgence as well? Okay. Well, I'll take the last one first. Uh, no, the indulgences are something which is specifically set for specific activities or works, which done in a spirit of faith extend the grace of the sacrament of penance by which we make uh, reparation for the temporal punishment that is due to our sins. The sacrament, of course, uh, absolutely and perfectly absolving us from the eternal consequences, hell, uh, uniting us back to God if we are in the state of mortal sin. The indulgences uh, if our penance is not thoroughgoing coming out of the sacrament of penance, and, you know, that requires a, a, a turning from uh, all of our sinfulness and our attitudes of sin, and how many actually accomplish that, we cannot know. We probably can't even tell in our own case. Then we have some of the temporal consequences, the temporal punishment due to those forgiven sins to be taken away. Uh, in the Eucharist, of course, we re are in communion with our Lord, and the Lord can, in the sacraments, uh, you know, by his choice or by the perfection of our disposition, if you will, also deliver us completely uh, from that, although from mortal sin we have to take participate in the sacraments. With regard to the specific things, no, the, the office is uh, obviously a duty of the clergy and religious, uh, it is prayer, and prayer is partially indulgenced of any kind. That's a, a, called a general grant. Uh, it would not substitute for uh, devout reading of the Scriptures and that indulgence. Just as a private rosary doesn't satisfy the condition, say, for the family rosary, for saying the rosary with others in a group. Uh, so there, that, that it's specific to particular acts and situations. Uh, so, and I think you may have had a one other circumstance in there, you asked about the um, the Eucharist. You asked about the uh, office. Was there a third thing? For about forty minutes, you're in front of the reserved sacrament. Would that count as adoration? Uh, an adoration of half an hour, yes. It does not have to be uh, exposed. Uh, a holy hour, which it can be a holy half hour in the law. Uh, can be 30 minutes, and yes, when you do it for that intention, that is potentially a plenary indulgence, all the other conditions being satisfied, including that detachment from one's venial sins. Uh, that's the, the catch-22 of all who fail to get a plenary indulgence, uh, even though they did something which earns one uh, in church law. Next up is Frank in Northwest Louisiana, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Frank, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hello. My question is, what is the biblical support for prayer to the saints? Well, I think it starts uh, with uh, the fact that uh, we are alive in Christ. Uh, Ab uh, as Jesus said when uh, speaking of Abraham, that he is alive in God. He saw his day, Christ's day, and rejoiced. 
In other words, the saints are alive in God. They're as, in alive, as alive in him as our neighbor is. So from the very beginning, the church has had the, the practice of intercessory prayer uh, uh, through the saints. Uh, it's not explicitly mentioned in Scripture because, remember, the Scripture is not uh, sort of a didactic book trying to teach us all of the little ins and outs of theology, but it's telling us about Christ, his teaching, and the apostles and others pass on uh, other things which are not in sacred Scripture, such as the practices associated with each of the sacraments. Uh, questions like, well, why, why do Catholics baptize infants or why do they pray to the saints are resolved by the fact that from the very beginning they have done it this way because the totality of what God has revealed is not in the writings of the apostles and the other apostolic figures, but it's in the teaching of the apostles written down and orally, as St. Paul tells us. Uh, and so um, in that teaching, we know about the, the, the saints, prayer to the saints. We see uh, a participation, their participation in Christ's office of intercession, for example, in the book of Revelation in chapters 4 and 8, where we see the, we see the 24 elders representing the 24, uh, uh, 24 patriarchs of the tribes and the 24 apostles of, of the new covenant. We see them wearing crowns. Uh, they're don't wearing the supreme crown. They lay their crowns down before Christ, but they're participating in his reign and participating in his reign means in his governance, in his priestly, his prophetic and his kingly role. And so we see that implied there. The church was doing it and it would have understood it at that time. Likewise, with the angels, we see their uh, mediatory role in that the incense representing the prayers of the of the of the saints on earth being off, offered up uh, to God, uh, so not just the saints but the angels as well. Uh, so, though, although it's not mentioned explicitly in in the sacred scriptures, it's inferred in the nature of the afterlife, in the unity in God of believers, both living and dead, uh, mortal at least in terms of human life and mortality. And it's also implied in passages such as that. And so the church takes it for granted. Now, if somebody is looking tick for tack and to go down the list on doctrines and say, well, demonstrate this explicitly from the Bible, you're not going to see that. There was nothing you could point to as the Bible until the second century, really, and well into the third before there was any agreement, and into the fourth before the church even said anything definitive on what constituted the canon of Scripture. So during all this time, were people bereft of guidance on these matters? No. They had, as St. Irenaeus said, they have the church. The church is established by the apostles. And he speaks specifically in his Against Heresies from about 180 A.D., about the fact that in this church you find the deposit of the faith, the, you find the, the doctrine of, of Christ handed on in all the churches, and outside of conformity to these churches, what you find is thieves and robbers, he says. In other words, the heretics of his day who teach the contrary or don't teach what the apostolic churches, especially Rome, taught. So, that was the nature of the first several centuries before there was even an established canon of the sacred scripture. And it's out of that deep font of revelation held by the apostolic churches that we find many of the things which you can't directly point to, you know, line by line, word for word, doctrine for doctrine, 
uh, in the sacred scripture. So you have to see it in that context and uh, to that extent say, well, I may not demonstrate it perfectly to my friend or whomever, uh, but does his argument that it has to be in there in the way he's looking for it, does that even make sense when you look at the way the, the Bible developed over time? 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Mark in San Fernando Valley, California, listening on Sirius XM 130. Mark, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Colin. It's always nice to hear your voice. I drive around all day as an Uber driver listening to EWTN, and it's awesome. Well, I hope you don't scare away any clients. (laughs) They get doubled down on their uh, Starbucks when you say something really important. Anyway, my question is this. I'm a Catholic, but my wife and I Vegas it five years ago. We're not sacramentally married. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that it's a screwed-up situation, and my wife is dragging her feet, and we got to wait this through. But am I allowed to go to confession if I'm not sacramentally married? Thank you very much, and uh, God bless. Sure. Yeah, those are difficult uh, situations, and I know that the Pope has, you know, he's he's tried using the principles of pastoral theology. I mean, some don't always agree with maybe some of the conclusions that are drawn from what he has said and what he has issued. The, The basic difficulty is that the sacrament of penance assures us that we are right with God. And one of the things we must do when we leave the sacrament is we have basically said we will, you know, not offend seriously against any of the commandments. That's possible for couples who are waiting the resolution of a marital situation, but it's only possible if they don't exercise marital rights and privileges while not being validly married. That's the difficulty in that situation. Uh, You couldn't honestly make uh, a confession without saying, you know, without having that commitment to the non-practice of those uh, rights and privileges. Um, You know, so it is is a tough situation, and I think persevere in trying to to get that fixed up, get it... uh, you know, with the church to get it probably convalidated. That's often in a non-sacramental marriage. It's basically a signature on the document, but that has to be demonstrated that all the other details are satisfied, and then uh, you can get that uh, convalidation from the from the diocese. But to go to confession, you would have to make that commitment, and that's probably going to be the the non-starter for a lot of couples. Does that help, Mark? Yeah, it does. Uh, it more or less says that I could go to confession if we if we get on the track. But the question now is, what begins that? Does it start in the heart? Well, obviously, you have to agree that this is something that we may not exercise our marital rights, uh, you know, until we have this resolved, um, and that's that's the difficulty. You know, if you were two non-Catholics married in another situation, you'd be good to go because the church recognizes marriage done with the the right intention where people have never been married before. There's no issues of divorce or, or of anything of that kind to be settled. But because you are Catholic, you were obstructed from making a valid marriage when you married her. Uh, and that's what has to be fixed up and satisfied. And as I said, it can, be, it can involve only... 
uh, uh, you know, agreement and con- signature uh, of the bishop, I presume, on the on the document. But that has to be done. That's something to address with the marriage tribunal of your diocese, maybe with the canonical vicar of your diocese, and find out, you know, lay out the case. Where am I at? What do I have to do? 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Two open lines for you at 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next stop is the great state of Ohio. Karen is listening on Living Bread Radio. Karen, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, good afternoon to you both, and thank you for your beautiful ministry. You're welcome. Okay, I have a hard time wrapping my head around the sainthood of Adam and Eve. Um, I understand every human being is endowed with free will, and God does not push himself upon us, and I understand that we are only saved, only saved through his mercy. And in light of how normal canonizations go, Mm -hmm. well, the ones I've witnessed in my life, the normal progression um, oh, number one, when I look around the world and see, it seems like sometimes the whole world is crying. Um, um, maybe not every person on every given day, but wow, it's, it's a mess in the world. And I know we're to be the light to the world. But anyway, back to the gravity of Adam and Eve, uh, and the unleashing of, um, I, I guess you would say, well... It was, sure, I, it was, I, I think I get the scope of your question. Uh, let me go ahead and answer it. Yes, we know that Adam and Eve did the great sin, um, specifically Adam as the sort of the head of the first couple and first family, and in sinning brought to upon all of us uh, the loss of the privileges that were given to them, uh, the graces which have amply described in the catechism and in the fathers and doctors of the church. We also know that we're to them were given the proto-gospel, the evangel- proto-evangelium, uh, and that is the promise of a Redeemer uh, and a woman whose uh, progeny would crush the, the serpent's head, and uh, he would lie in wait for the heel. So this is, this is what we, we know. I think what the Church assumes is that the great and holy individuals of the Old Covenants, of the Old Testament, including Adam and Eve, um, persevered once they had recovered from their sin, as David did. We have his beautiful psalms of penitence because because he repented. Uh, If there were no repentance, uh, we would would be in our trouble ourselves. 
So how the Church understands that before Christ we have the benefit of the sacraments, we have the benefit, as you mentioned, of uh, of a process, at least since the uh, in different shapes and forms from the 1100s, uh, by which saints are individuals, their lives are judged, and their their sanctity uh, uh, verified, if you will. Uh, what about in the past? Well, in the early church, for example, with the martyrs, that was uh, the martyrs are listed as saints because they died for Christ. They gave the greatest witness. And after the martyrs of the early church, we have the people who lived holy lives because, as a, in a way, that those holy lives are a white martyrdom. They can no longer, they don't have an occasion to give their life for Christ, but they do the next best thing. They give their life totally and completely without being put to death for their faith. And so we have now not only the saints of holiness, but we have the saints who were martyrs. Now before that, St. Thomas Aquinas makes clear it's that nobody was saved without Christ, but it's how they were saved. We are saved through baptism because Christ gave that specific command, and if we know we have that obligation, then we have a moral obligation to be, uh, to be baptized. Outside of that, people who are in God and practicing some kind of faith, and whether they're faithful to the natural law or whatever, as Pope Pius IX said in the 1800s, we leave to God their judgment. But baptism is the normal and the necessary means, at least as the instrument of the graces of the redemption, and we know no other in our day since Christ. Before that, St. Thomas tells us it's that looking forward to. And so when we're told in Scripture, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham didn't know about Christ, but he may have known you know, of the promise of a Redeemer. The Israelites didn't explicitly know about Christ, even as the Messianic prophecies developed and came along over time through the prophets, and they're a corpus of, of, of an understanding of what the Messiah would be and so on was developing. But they knew that God was their Redeemer, and that was sufficient for them, St. Thomas tells it, so that Although the sacraments of, of the old law, for instance, for the Jewish people didn't work as the sacraments of the new law work for us, and that is when you do them, you know they work. But if you had faith, they worked, as faith worked for Abraham. It worked for Moses. It worked for the prophets and the kings and so on. It's that faith in a Messiah even understood darkly in the future, and we know to be Christ, that confidence and trust in God which saved them. They believed God, and God credited it to them as righteousness. So they are listed, many of them, in, as saints. David, King David is a saint. Uh, Abraham and Adam and Eve are listed as saints for that reason. They believed God. They followed him despite the sins they had committed. And in dying, they died in union with God. We have far greater privileges as Christians, but yet that was, as St. Thomas explains, that was sufficient for them in view of the Redeemer. And even we know that in the case of Our, Our Lady, uh, as uh, Pius IX, the, the same Pius IX who spoke about those outside the Church, in declaring the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, he said, in view of the merits of the redemption, she was conceived immaculately. 
So it, it's not that we're apart from Christ or the blessings which Christ brought in the world through redemption, but in some manner, hers much more explicitly, obviously, than, say, Abraham or Noah or Adam and Eve, but nonetheless in view of Christ in some way. So that's why the church lists them as saints. It's done so, it's recognized them, uh, probably more so in the East than in the West, but it's in the Roman martyrology, the current martyrology uh, of the church, which lists the 5,000 or so canonized and equivalently uh, sainted people, such as Adam and Eve and David and Elijah and so on. Uh, so it's something developed over time, but we we know how and why, because they believe God is credited to them to righteous as righteousness, even though they may have had a very murky idea of who and how the Redeemer would come into their life and into the world. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Christina is in Indianapolis, Indiana, listening on Catholic Radio Indy. Christina, thanks for holding. You're on with Colin. Hello. Thank you for taking my call and for your wonderful explanations. It's very helpful. You're welcome. Um, So I was born and raised Catholic. I was taught that you could take the Eucharist from uh, Eucharistic minister. Um, my husband, after about 10 years of marriage, converted to Catholicism, which I'm so happy about. But he was asking about um, the Eucharist and not being able to take it unless from only from hands that are consecrated. And he said it was part of canon law. And I wasn't sure how mm-hmm. to explain this or look at yeah. it. And, you know, he part of him said perhaps he's noticed perhaps that is why some Catholics, um, we don't view the Eucharist as we should, mm-hmm. you know, with... Right, you see people who leave one communion line to Those go to another. Those pesky converts, I'm telling you. Yeah, they're, they're the most trouble of all, aren't they? <laughs> uh, it, you know, it's a wonderful um, effort to be faithful. However, it's wrong. It's wrong for this reason, and that is, although the priest's hands are consecrated for the sacrifice of the Mass and the other things because he has the power of the keys and he will uh, do those offices that are specifically belong to the priesthood of Christ, uh, it's quite clear historically that the Eucharist has been given by individuals who are not priests. So, for example, we have saints of the Church who were acolytes, Uh, In the early church, uh, the Eucharist was often, we know this from histories, uh, uh, would be kept in the home or carried to the sick by individuals, pretty much as is done today. Uh, The martyr St. Tarsisius was carrying the Eucharist from a mass to the sick when he was stopped by the Romans, and he gave his life rather than surrender the Eucharist to them, uh, to the soldiers. Uh, So the historical record doesn't demonstrate that. Uh, Canon law doesn't say that at all, which, you know, it's odd that that would be. uh, He's heard stuff, uh, no doubt. Uh, And I think it's people who have the wonderful intention to guard and protect and to treat as holily as possible the Blessed Sacrament. And we should all have that intention. We should receive it devoutly, intentionally, uh, and respectfully. Uh, 
But we also have to remember part of the deposit of the faith is the authority of the church and the power of the keys. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. And whether we agree that uh, uh, giving uh, lay people, um, and I'm an instituted acolyte, but I'm still a lay person, giving lay people the Blessed Sacrament to distribute to others, whether extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, instituted acolytes, we may figure that that's not showing the proper respect, but the Church has made the decision that can be done. You know, so it it's way, in a way it's weighing apple and oranges. First of all, that's never been the absolute case by any necessity. And here's a case of necessity. The church is burning. You know you can get the key and get the blessed sacrament. Oh, I can't go in and get the sacrament because I'm not consecrated. We would say, well, no, a case of necessity. The church determines when the cases of necessity are. And so even the laws and norms regarding extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion speak of the necessity of that on particular occasions, and it gives the reasons why that necessity can be utilized by, uh, by, the, um, uh, by the pastor or by the celebrant. You know, even if it's only so communion doesn't take 20 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever to make it go more efficiently, that's, that's something he can do. But the point is, I, we defer to the law of the church. We can argue about the prudence and imprudence of it in particular circumstances. But in a way, the authority of the church is a greater reality than th- who gets to decide when those cases of necessity that have always been present in history are to be exercised by lay people. And I think we have to look at it that way. It's sometimes used in a very political way to disparage the Second Vatican Council and the decisions, you know, made as a result of it by various popes. Um, How many are there? Three of them are saints now. John, John Paul, and Paul. So I say even logically take your chances whether you wish to call saints wrong in authorizing this or not. You may say, well, that was not a prudent decision. Argue that case, but it's not justified to say that only consecrated hands because history refutes it. Thanks, Christina. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Be sure to check out EWTN News In-Depth tonight with Monsi Alvarado. 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Jonathan Rooney of The Chosen discusses his faith and the Christmas special getting so many rave reviews across the country. And Cardinal George Pell from uh, from Australia on the record to weigh in on his trial and future the future of the financial reforms in the Vatican. That's EWTN News In-Depth tonight at 8 Eastern Time on EWTN Radio and Television. Next up is Aaliyah in San Angelo, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Aaliyah, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello. Thank you for your program. Oh, you're welcome. I want to... I heard last night, and it had me baffled, that uh, the three kings did not arrive until two years later after Jesus Christ's birth. Is that correct? 
I don't think that we have enough information. I mean, some have, I've heard people argue that. Uh, we know that Herod killed all the children two years and under. I think he was uh, pr- giving himself a margin of error there. Uh, some would say, well, that meant that Jesus could be as old as, as two years. Um, and then if you put in all of the events, including the arrival of the Magi within that two-year period, I don't know that they would have remained in the stable for, you know, in the cave, cave stable for two years um, after the birth of our Lord. So I, I think that's an opinion of some, but I think it would be a hard to defend opinion uh, that they would simply be uh, there perhaps recuperating. Uh, I wouldn't think that would they, well, anyway. I, I think those are the arguments that are made for it. The two years mentioned, uh, two-year-olds uh, Herod uh, put to death, up to two. Uh, but I don't think we really know. We know that they followed some astronomical event, whether it's supernatural in the strict sense or a providential sign uh, from the normal motions of the planets and stars. Uh, you know, you can argue that case as well. There's a lot about the details of that history we don't know, including the year. Uh, so I would say it's hard to affirm as absolute truth that the Magi didn't come until the end uh, of two years. I think if that were the case, Herod would have probably killed up to three-year-olds to include his margin of error. I think it must have been much closer uh than than that. I think it was probably in the middle of that period sometime. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. That's the number Marty used right here in Birmingham, Alabama, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Marty, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hey, Colin. I uh, came in in the middle of your conversation about plenary indulgence, and it seemed like you were building up to that through adoration of the uh, sacraments, but I, all I got was enough to be confused. Do you mind um, kind of summarizing Well, that we do point? have a podcast, you know. <laughs> yeah. Check, okay. check. Yeah, you can check that out at uh, 9 p.m. Central Time tonight. But uh, Colin was answering the question, Marty, from our first caller, who was asking about certain specific practices right, yeah. and whether the way he was performing those practices would make him eligible for a plenary indulgence. Yeah, and I, in the process of that, what you probably came in on when I was noting some examples, there is, for instance, uh, contemplating the sacred scripture, I believe it's uh, 15 minutes, 30 minutes for making a holy hour, uh, and that would be exposed or reserved in the tabernacle, um, uh, saying the rosary in a group would be examples of that. So those are the works that I have attached. There are many others, and you can buy the Manual of Indulgences from the Bishop's Conference, uh, translated into English, if anyone wants to see the whole gamut of that. I, the three notable things that I always liked about the uh, indulgences as promulgated by Paul VI are the general grants, that there is a general grant for prayer as a pious act, so you, you do something prayerful, and if you do that with the intention of gaining a in, uh, partial indulgence, you get do it, and there's no specification as to what prayer and how long or anything like that. Uh, works of penitence, again, 
there's no specification of those. And acts of charity, there's no specification of those. So the very things that we can do as a normal part of our Catholic life of prayer and penitence and acts of charity, we can do in order to gain an indulgence. And I would propose that people do it not just for themselves, but they give it to Our Lady to dispense in favor of those who have the need of those graces. That is called, That would be a, a great act of charity to do that as well. Uh, but in any case, uh, like I said, you came in at the end of that and you caught the specific cases, as Jack noted. Uh, Larry's watching us on YouTube, and he says, Why are there two distinct calendars in the Church, depending on the form of the Mass that is celebrated? Well, there was a calendar in place uh, prior to the uh, post-Vatican II uh, liturgical books coming out in the late 60s and early 70s. And that calendar was crowded with saints and with different liturgical seasons and preparations for seasons. Uh, so I would say that in the new, the calendar that came out afterward did a couple of things. With regard to the seasons, it sort of simplified it up to ordinary time, to Lent and to Advent. There wasn't a preparatory period with each of the Sundays out seven or eight weeks being given a name. So there's a lot of that. But the basic seasons of there of, of Lent and preparation for, for Holy Week and Easter and the, um, and the Advent in preparation for, for Christmas. In terms of the uh, Christmas, that was much shortened to the period immediately after Christmas that includes the, the, the Epiphany and the Baptism of Our Lord, which I think generally concludes the Christmas season. Whereas before, it used to go all the way up to February 2nd in Candlemas, or the Purification or Presentation. With regard to the saints, Many saints had been placed on days on which they did not die, which has been the church's favorite practice, because there were other great individuals already on those days. So the church reduced the calendar in order to take account of the greater, greatest of the saints and to give them their proper days. And in doing that, a lot of saints that may have uh, had particular uh, feast days, prior to the Second Vatican Council are no longer listed on the calendar or in the, the missals, per se, but they're still in the martyrology. And in the martyrology I mentioned earlier, on each of those days, there are anywhere from uh, 12 to even 20 saints listed whose feast day it is, usually only one of whom, or at most two or three, you're even aware of as being saints who have feast days on that day. And you're aware of them because they're either they have a memorial that we celebrate on the calendar each year, or they have an optional memorial that is listed on the calendar, also called a commemoration. Many other saints are on those days, and you've got to go in the martyrology to find out who they are. But it's quite an interesting uh, thing to do, actually. Uh, Thomas is in Houston, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Thomas, thanks so much for holding. You're on with Colin. And thank you very much for, call, for taking my call. Uh, Colin Donovan. I, I'm a bit, a bit nervous, but my, my question is, um, I'm 85 years old, I'm housebound, and uh, I got the idea the other day about being able to go to confession by way of telephone. Is that ever a, a consideration? 
Now, this has been proposed and rejected uh, several times now by the Holy See. The sacraments are things which are done personally, and so that is a very you know, personal act. But every Catholic in the world is in some ecclesiastical jurisdiction, diocese or archdiocese or apostolic vicariate, vicariate or whatever, call the rectory and ask for the priest to come and hear your confession. That is your right and your privilege to do that, and, and you should, if it's been a while. Uh, you know, don't wear him ragged, but, you know, this is uh, the season before Christmas when we ought to go to confession, as is Lent. And we're, 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 we're supposed to go at least once a year, or we, if we need to, to fulfill our Easter obligation. Uh, but certainly, you know, without pestering the priest, I think this is a good time of the year, as is Lent, to make a specific request that he, he come to hear your confession. And if you're sick and elderly and frail, then also to get the, uh, the uh, anointing of the sick as well. Uh, so that would be a good thing to do as well. And generally speaking, priests are happy to do that. I, yeah, seen, I would think, I've never known a priest who would say I've no seen, to that. I've seen many priests that have addressed in their homilies at funeral masses, yeah. that they were astounded that the need existed that they were not made aware of. Right, and I think that's they they understand that duty and they're they're happy to fulfill it. In my experience, yeah, very good, Thomas. Thanks so much. We'll keep you in our prayers uh, during the rest of this Advent season as we head into uh, Christmas time uh, at the end of next week. Well, that's going to do it for another episode of EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan. Colin, hope you have a Merry Christmas. And you and Johnette as well and your family. Thank you. We appreciate that very much. Um, that does it for another week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it next week on Monday, Father John Tregilio. We talk faith, family, and fellowship on Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. Wednesday, Father Mitch Pack was in the house talking church teaching, ancient languages, scripture, and the like. Thursday, we'll talk to Dominican Father Brian Malady. And next Friday, Colin is being booted. He's bumped. He's out of here. He is preempted for our beautiful 48 hours of Christmas celebration. Encourage everybody to tune in Friday and Saturday next week if you've got some time for the 48 hours of Christmas. Until we get together next time, I'm Jack Williams. On behalf of our producer, Michael McCall, our host, Colin Donovan, call screener, Mr. Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson, wishing you all a very great weekend, and we'll see you Monday.